I want to talk about a subject very dear to my heart tonight, Average Andrew. I kind of touted that this morning. If you take your Bibles and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1. Our theme for this year, as you can see on the screen, is bringing the gospel home. And it's based on this passage. Appreciate Heather working to come up with this visual and, and something that we can remember throughout the year. You remember that one we had last year, Confident in Christ. Every time you came, you saw that. We applied it in different ways, even in our missions conference. We'll be doing the same thing with this matter of bringing the gospel home. This is where the emphasis in the New Testament is when it comes to evangelism. Being burdened for those closest to us, the family ties. That's what God expects. We see the New Testament replete with examples of this. I think of the demoniac of Gadara, who had a legion of demons in him. If you've ever gone to Israel, you know, in all likelihood, you'll be taken to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. You'll see only one place where this could possibly have happened, where all 2,000 hogs could have committed hogicide right there, slid down the steep bank after uh, they went into the, the hogs from the demon-possessed man. And he was made whole by Christ. And he was found for the first time, probably in years, sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Out of gratitude to Christ, he wanted to follow him. He said, Master, I'm so thankful. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. Remember, Jesus declined that offer. And he said to him in Mark 5, 19, go home to thy friends. That's an interesting word, friends. If you look it up in the Greek, it means literally thine own. It's primarily his family. Go home to your family, to those closest to you, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee. That was the priority for this man. Then there's Cornelius, the Roman centurion, the Gentile. And the Lord had to work Peter over to get him ready to take the gospel to this Gentile. And so he sent for Peter and had him come so that he could hear the words whereby he could receive forgiveness of sins. But it wasn't just him that was there. It was the whole family, the whole household. They were his concern, his first concern. Someone has said... God, uh, Christ's last command should be our first concern. That's a good motto. We've had that for a missions theme before. And to take the gospel is our first concern. But what should be our first concern within that mandate? Our family. The Philippian jailer was kept from taking his own life by Paul and Silas. The story is told in Acts chapter 16. And after he had washed their wounds, their stripes, he... Uh, had the whole family gather to hear the gospel. And they were all saved and baptized before daybreak. How can we keep the good news to ourselves? Amen. If we truly love our own, we'll be like those lepers outside the city of Samaria. Surely some mischief will overtake us if we don't go back to that city that's under doom and besieged. And we share the good news. And the attitude needs to be, as we see in, in, in the prophets, we need to do it whether they will hear or whether they will forbear. Sometimes it won't be appreciated. Sometimes it, it, 
it may alienate us from our loved ones for a while. Oh, we don't need to be mean. We need to be careful about how we do it. But we have to be willing to pay that price. The scriptural passage accompanying the 2024 theme of bringing the gospel home are these verses from John's gospel. We'll begin reading in verse 35. John chapter 1. And again, the next day after John stood. That's not John the writer, the apostle. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptist stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted master. Where dwellest thou? Where are you staying? Probably wasn't Nazareth. He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt or stayed, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Verse 42, And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Before Andrew could become an apostle, he had to become a believer. He had been a disciple of John the Baptist. Nothing wrong with John's baptism. It just wasn't the up-to-date one. And there was a shelf life on John's message. He was pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God. And when he did that, and Andrew and the other unnamed disciple was probably John, because John never names himself in his own gospel. When he said, Behold the Lamb of God, and he said, He must increase, but I must decrease, that's all it took for Andrew. He ceased following John the Baptist, and he started following Jesus, the one to whom John was pointing. He didn't feel like he was slighting, insulting John the Baptist at all. In fact, John the Baptist was fulfilled. It's like most missionaries are told in candidate school to work themselves out of a job, amen, and uh, train another pastor to take their place on the field. That was the way it was with John the Baptist. And as soon as he leaves to go see where Jesus, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah was staying, and he finds out he spends the rest of the day probably with him, no telling how much he heard from the lips of the Son of God. What is his first reaction? He hightails it back to his brother, his fishing partner, Simon Peter. And he breathlessly declares, we have found him. (laughs) Hallelujah, we found him. The Messiah. And he brings him to Jesus, the Christ. Andrew. Andrew is just an average guy. He didn't write any book in the Bible. He didn't write a gospel. He didn't write an epistle. We never read that he performed one miracle. In fact, the name Andrew, I promised some people I kind of use it as a teaser. I tell them what their name, name meant tonight. We got several people named Andrew here tonight. Andrew, in the Greek, comes from the root andros, which means man. Pretty generic. Or manly. So you guys that are named Andrew, when your wife calls your name or your sweetheart or your mother, Stick out your chest. No, don't do that. Brother Gustavo said, don't, we shouldn't do that. 
But when, when they call you Andrew, they're really paying you a compliment. You're the man. But Andrew was just an average guy. He did not stand out in the crowd. He was so ordinary. But almost every time we see him in the Gospels, and it's not a lot, we see him bringing someone to Christ. And he began with his brother. He began with Simon Peter, who eclipsed Andrew in fame very quickly. He became the great apostle of Pentecost. It's interesting that Andrew was the first apostle chosen by Jesus. And you can readily see why. He was a recruiter. I'd love to have a whole church full of Andrews. What was it that made this ordinary man, this average guy, such an extraordinary soul winner? That's what I want to talk about tonight. I hope God will speak to our hearts. This could really transform the direction we go as a church this year, and I pray it will. What was it that made this ordinary man such an extraordinary soul winner? First of all, it was his personal knowledge of Christ. In the verses we read, especially verse 35 and then verse 39 and 40, Andrew and the unnamed disciple, probably John, went with Christ at his invitation to see where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day, and they had personal communion. Notice that Andrew, as well as John, investigated the claims of Christ, and they became totally convinced that he was the one that John the Baptist said he was, the Messiah, after spending hours with him. They were convinced of that. John testified in his gospel, I saw and bear record that this is the Christ. The one that they've been waiting for, for centuries. May I remind us all that Jesus still invites men to come and see. When they asked him, where dwellest thou? He said, come and see. Now that's not the same thing as telling people to try Jesus. I cringe every time I hear that. I know there's a famous song Maybe you love it. I'm not here to burst your bubble tonight, but nowhere in the Bible are we taught to tell people, try Jesus, you know, like another commodity, and see if he works for you. But we are to challenge them to reverently investigate with a surrendered will the unmistakable claims of Christ. I often use John 7, 17 in my witnessing. I'll take the prospect to John 7, 17, and I'll say, repeat that verse, which says, Jesus is talking. These are words in red. If any man will do, and that means literally willeth to do, has a surrendered will about it, he shall know of the doctrine, he shall know of the teaching, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. That's a tremendous verse. We need to put that to the test. Do you know Jesus yourself? Have you gotten over it? I appreciate what David Smith sang here when he gave his concert recently, the song his dad wrote, Al Smith, who's also been here but years ago in the other building. <clears throat> I've never lost the wonder of it all. I hope you've never lost the wonder. I hope the grace that forgave you is fresh and real. Some of us are reading a, a great book, the gospel primer. We read it every January, and it reminds us of that, preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, making sure we don't get over it. 
I don't think Andrew got over it. And his first-hand acquaintance with Jesus was what ignited his passion for witnessing. No sooner had Andrew been introduced to Jesus than his response, his attitude was, everybody needs to know this man. That's the way those two Emmaus disciples were on the afternoon of Jesus' resurrection as he walked with them about a seven and a half mile distance and they didn't know who he was for the longest time. And then he opened their understanding as they sat at as he sat at meat with them, they constrained him to stay. They said, abide with us. And they saw his hands as he broke the bread. And they knew who he was. He vanished from their sight, but not until he had opened their understanding and showed it them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I would love to have heard that. And then they turned to each other and they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked with us by the way? When Jesus fills you and you speak with someone, it's different. There's a burning heart. They couldn't help it. After Christ had shared that with them, they had to share it with somebody else. Even though the hour was late, they got up and they went to Jerusalem to tell the other 11 disciples. That means by the time they got back to Emmaus, it would have been dark. They didn't normally do that. It wasn't very safe. But they had to because their hearts were burning within them. This is what animated the character Pilgrim in Bunyan's immortal classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. When he met Christ at the foot of the cross and his burden rolled away off his back, Bunyan says, he causes him to say, he rejoiced so greatly he wanted to shout it to the trees and the stars and brooks and birds to breathe it to everything and everyone. Do you remember that? Is that the way you felt when you first got saved? What's changed? Has the gospel become passe, out of fashion? Have we moved on to something else, more up-to-date, more exciting? Or do you still get excited all over again when you share the gospel with somebody? When you share your testimony? I think of the Apostle Paul when he gave that Damascus Road testimony before Agrippa and the governor Festus. He, got, he must have gotten excited. Because the governor spoke up and said, Paul, 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 hold on. You're, you're beside yourself. All your learning has driven you mad. Paul would have loved that song that Al Smith wrote. I've never lost the wonder of it all. I like that story. I don't know if it's true or not. I like to think it is. The farmer that was talking to his neighbor farmer about all God's goodness and all God had done for him. He just got so carried away, he just couldn't stop. And he handed the reins to his mule team, to his neighbor, and he said, here, hold my mule while I shout. He never lost the wonder. But the first people we should share the good news with is our own flesh and blood. Andrew, John MacArthur says, was the first home missionary. I like that. 
God intends for family ties, blood ties, to be an influence for good. That's why in the Levitical code, when a, a, a man died, his brother, the closest one to him, if possible, was to marry his wife to raise up seed for him. That's the closeness of the family tie. Proverbs 17, verse 17 declares, a brother is born for adversity. That doesn't mean that he's born to give you trouble. <laughs> it means that he's born to help you when you're in trouble. I think about Cain. When he killed his brother Abel with lying evasiveness, he answered God when God demanded him to give account for his brother's blood. And he asked this famous question, am I my brother's keeper? He was trying to use that as a cop-out, but the answer, you know what the answer is, yes, Cain, you are, and I am my brother's keeper, and you are your brother's keeper, and your sister's keeper, and we should feel responsible for those closest to us. Even the rich man in hell, though he couldn't do anything about it, felt responsible for his five brothers. He wanted someone to go and tell them that they didn't come to that same place of torment. Probably he was the oldest out of the six. His influence had led them astray. He sure didn't want them casting that in his teeth for eternity. Concern for those closest to us. Away with this cop-out, and I hear it all the time. I hope you won't be guilty of it. That says, Pastor, you know, a man's family won't pay any attention to him. I differ from that. I really do. I believe they will pay attention if a man means business and truly loves his brother. A brother will listen to a brother a lot quicker than he will an outsider, even a preacher. The ties of blood are so strong. But we won't be able to influence our family if we're hypocrites. And we won't be able to influence our family if we're weak compromisers like Lot was in Sodom. He said, up, leave the city, God's going to destroy it. But his sons-in-law laughed at him. He had no influence. He had no credibility. He had no ethical credibility. He seemed as one that mocked. I'm simply saying, beloved, God clearly intends that every human tie should be used to rescue our family from hell. He's ordained those ties for a purpose. Mother, you nurse that little baby. You've got some new babies, just been born, two or three more in the pipeline. I praise the Lord for that. Mother, use that time that you have to train, to nurture, to share Christ and his love to the, that precious child. Fathers should model and warn and train. Teachers should seek to win their lost students to the Savior. We're going to have a celebration of life this coming Saturday for a lady that did that. Barbara Petter taught at our school for a number of years. First grade teacher. Oh, how she loved those students. I've heard the testimonies of some already who've said, it was in Barbara Petter's class I came to Christ. Well, we accept, and that's why God has put us where we are. I remember when Barbara Petter came, she thought she was saved, but she wasn't. And she came to realize she was not a born-again child of God. And once she did, and the Lord opened her eyes, she said, if I was deceived, I wonder how many others are. 
What made average Andrew an extraordinary soul winner? He knew Jesus Christ. He personally knew Jesus Christ. Secondly, he had a personal belief in Christ's sufficiency. Second time we see Andrew, he's told about in the story of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, which is found in all four Gospels. But I would, since we're in the book of John, the Gospel of John, would you just turn a few pages to John chapter 6, where Andrew pops up again as Jesus feeds 5,000 men with just five little barley loaves and two sardines, two fishes. Philip is the one that answers Jesus first of all when Jesus looked at the disciples and said, give ye them to eat. We don't read those words in John's gospel, but they are in another gospel account. In verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 pennyworth, 200 denarii of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little boat. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, there's a lad here little boy, which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? We know the rest of the story. It was enough to do what God wanted to do through Jesus Christ miraculously. Jesus asked that question, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? Because, not because he was worried. It wasn't that he didn't know where he was going to find enough food for these people. The Bible says he did it to test the others, to test his disciples. According to Matthew's account, Jesus had said to all of the disciples, give ye them to eat. But isn't it significant? Only Andrew was the one to respond. He went and found that little boy. He accepted the responsibility to locate a food source. As he said in verses 8 and 9, there's a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. He didn't treat Christ's command as unreasonable. Perhaps some of the others did. And Christ still appeals to us today, give the bread of life to others. Oh, can we hear him saying in so many words, they need not depart. They don't need to go to hell. They don't need to perish. Give ye them to eat. Can we hear him? I hope we know and believe that only the living Christ can satisfy. He is the complete food source. Amen. Only Christ can satisfy. He's the bread of life. He's the living water of which man will not thirst again if he drinks. He's the honey in the rock. He's the wine of joy. How can we keep it to ourselves? How we need to spread it abroad? We need to take Isaiah 55 verse 1 seriously and make it part of our appeal to others. Come ye, buy and eat, buy wine and milk without money and without price. We have freely received and now we need to take the command of Jesus seriously. Freely give. I love the fact that Andrew was obviously optimistic about the fruit of his endeavors. His attitude was, if I can just get this lunch to Jesus, he'll know what to do with it. Does that resonate with you? That was the same attitude of faith that impelled those four friends of the paralytic man to do something unheard of, unusual. Go up on top of the roof and dig a hole in the roof and you know that there was plaster coming down where the crowd was inside, but they couldn't get him in that way. And so when the Bible says in Mark 2, verse 5, as they lowered that 
friend on, on the stretcher through the hole they'd made in the roof. I love this, when Jesus saw their faith. When he saw their faith, he said to the sick of the palsy, and it, not the obvious thing, the healing did come first. He said, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And then to prove that he had power to forgive sins, he took care of the obvious thing. And he said, take up thy bed and walk. Oh, how easy we are to just fall for negativity and fear and excuses in our efforts about witnessing to people. Oh, let's reject as slander from the devil's lips some of the things maybe we've been believing. Maybe that lie, oh, they won't listen. They won't believe me. I'll ruin my friendship with them if I try to cram religion down their throat. They're likely to ask me a question I can't answer and make me look like a fool. And with these and other excuses, the devil just ties us up in knots. And we go months and years, and we never speak to them about their soul. What does the Bible say about that? Ecclesiastes 11 verse 4 applies here. He that observeth the winds shall not sow. He that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. We need to sow all the time. The gospel seed. Everywhere. Some of you here tonight I know because you've told me. You're thrilled at the privilege you've had at some point in your life of introducing a friend to someone to whom they're now happily married. There's some people here at Friendship Baptist Church that did that with Rachel and me 19 years ago. And we're still happily married. And we really appreciate those people that joined that conspiracy. <laughs> we love to play the role of a matchmaker if it's a happy marriage. And we know sometimes we're taking our life in our own hands. It may not work out, but we're willing to stick our neck out anyway. But I'm here to tell you tonight that joy cannot compare with the joy, the fulfillment that comes in knowing you had a part in introducing a friend to Jesus. That's what Andrew did. That's what he lived to do. What made average, ordinary Andrew an extraordinary witness for Christ. Third thing is his personal desire to see all men saved. The last time we see Andrew, as, at least as far as he's named, it's in the beginning of Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' earthly life. We read about it in John chapter 12. It's interesting we find all these accounts in John's gospel, the apostle. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 22. There are some Greeks that come up to Jerusalem for the feast. Jerusalem was packed. It was bursting at the seams. Hundreds of thousands of people. Sometimes we have the idea that when Jesus gave, made his triumphal entry, there were just a few people that lined the streets, and some of them threw their clothes out, and they were waving palm branches. And, you know, it was just a humble, small crowd. Uh-uh, there were thousands. Thousands. John 12, chapter John chapter 12, verse 20, and there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida, of Galilee, north of Jerusalem. 
saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Now this is very interesting about these Greeks. They come to Philip first. I think there's probably an obvious reason here. Philip is a Greek name. Philip is the only one of the twelve apostles who kept his Greek name. He did not use a Hebrew name. He used his Greek name exclusively. And so they come to Philip and they say, sir, we would see Jesus. But what did Philip do? Did he take them directly himself to Jesus? No. Interestingly enough, he takes them to Andrew. (laughs) And then he and Andrew take them to Jesus. It's quite obvious that as far as Andrew was concerned, there was no hint of uncertainty. There was no hesitation what to do. Take them to Jesus. Oh, that we, like Andrew, would see the value of individual souls. Not be prejudiced. Andrew was not prejudiced against these Gentiles. It would be years before his brother, his more famous brother, Peter, would get over his prejudice so that he'd be willing to go to Cornelius. And in this he showed a kindred spirit to his master. In John chapter 4, we read that wonderful story of Jesus' encounter with a woman of Samaria at the well of Sychar, Jacob's well. It's been studied in a wonderful book, The the God Who Satisfies, that Chris Anderson wrote. A number of of you have gone through that study. But Jesus broke every social norm of the day and culture when he talked with that woman. He was willing to be misunderstood. He was willing to be scandalized. He was unwilling to perpetuate a centuries-old feud and prejudice. And I'm talking to some people tonight that if you're going to see your unsaved loved ones saved, you're going to have to die to self. You're going to have to die to your reputation. You're going to have to differ from the prejudices of the rest of your family. Is there a black sheep in your family? Is there someone that everybody just overlooks and doesn't talk about unless it's to say something in a snide way or deprecating way? Then I challenge you to humble yourself in 2024 and make that black sheep your project and love that soul back to the shepherd of souls. You know, we don't think this, but we act like it sometimes. The way we behave and the way we don't witness, I started saying the way we witness, the way we don't witness, we act like somebody has to show themselves worthy before we'll give them the gospel, before we'll stoop to give them the gospel. Wait a minute, aren't we all unworthy? All we like sheep have gone astray. We were all where they were at, all right, one time. I thought the gospel was for the unworthy. Most every one of us, I'm sure if you've been saved any length of time, you've heard the name D.L. Moody, Evangelist D.L. Moody. Many of you have heard this story. Please let me tell it again. He was the great evangelist of the latter half of the 19th century. Interestingly enough, he died the closing week of the 19th century, December of 1899, just burned out for Christ in Kansas City. 
It is estimated that evangelist Steele Moody, with only a fourth grade education, spoke to 100 million people in his day. One million souls responded to the gospel because of him. Among those converted in his ministry was C.T. Studd, who became the great missionary. J. Wilbur Chapman, who became the great evangelist. D.L. Moody founded three schools. We think of Moody Bible Institute, but he also founded the Northfield Schools, the Mount Vernon Schools. Moody Bible Institute has been in existence over a century. It's trained literally thousands of people, missionaries, preachers, pastors. We still talk about D.L. Moody, who burned out for Christ, but not so well known as the name Edward Kimball, who was the humble Sunday school teacher of teenage boys at the church that Moody went to as a teenager, 18 years of age in Boston, Massachusetts, while he was working in his uncle's shoe store, Holton's Boot Shop. I did a little bit of extra reading about Kimball because I'd heard about him and I've heard others tell about him. I was interested to find out some things. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. He was not an outgoing man. He was not a bold witness for Christ. He was shy and retiring. But Moody had come to his Sunday school class. His uncle who owned the store and hired him made him. That, man, that was a requirement. For, for getting employment. When D.L. Moody, as an 18-year-old boy, came to Edward Kimball's Sunday school class, he didn't know his way through the Bible. He didn't know what, where to find. He was functionally illiterate. So Mr. Kimball gave him the Bible from which he was speaking, which had, was turned to the passage that he was expounding, and he took the Bible Moody had and, and used it himself. And he got a burden for this 18-year-old boy. And he said, I've got to talk to him about his soul. He went down Court Street, it was, to find that shoe shop. And the devil was working on him just like he works on you and me. All the excuses, what, what if he's offended? What if I bother him? He's with a customer. There. I, all the things you can imagine, all the excuses and fears gripped his mind so much that he was distracted by them, actually walked past the entrance to the store, the shoe store. And of course the devil used that to say, well, you can just keep on going, you don't need to turn around. But the love of Christ won out. He turned around. He went inside that shoe shop. He confronted an 18-year-old clerk unwrapping shoes behind the counter I'll let Moody tell the rest of the story in his own words. I don't want to put any words in his mouth. He wrote this. I quote, One day I recollect my teacher came around behind the counter of the shop I was at work in. And he put his hand upon my shoulder. And he talked to me about Christ and my soul. I had not even felt that I had a soul until then. I said to myself, this is a very strange thing. Here is a man who never saw me till lately, and now he's weeping over my sins, and I've never shed one tear about them. 
but I understand it now. And I know what it is to have a passion for men's souls and to weep over their sins. I don't even remember what he said, but I can still feel the power of that man's hand on my shoulder. And then he said something to me about the love of Christ. And right then and there, I was brought into the kingdom of God. End of quote. When Kimball left that shop, he felt that he'd failed. He was so halting and stammering in his words. He wanted to run and hide. But you know the rest of the story. What happened with that 18-year-old boy? Several years ago, Rachel and I were in Boston. I knew I was close to where that Holton shoe store was, but I couldn't find Court Street. I don't think Court Street is there anymore. But according to my GPS, I was very close. And so there was a, mo- a hotel right there, and I, I saw the bellhop or the porter, I think it was. It wasn't real, real busy, so I, I showed him what I was looking for on my GPS on my phone, and I said, do you know where a marker is? There's a marker that says where D.L. Moody was converted. He'd never heard of D.L. Moody. He didn't know where the marker was. So I kept looking myself and found it. It was less than 100 yards away. And I wept as I read it. You can see it on the screen. It's still there. It was a sacred moment for me. D.L. Moody, Christian evangelist, friend of man, founder of the Northfield Schools, was converted to God in a shoe store on this site. April 21, 1856. Thank God for a humble servant of Christ who saw the value of one poor, dirt poor, fatherless, functionally illiterate teenager in a Sunday school class for boys. Edward Kimball wasn't very gifted. He was just an average Andrew. He had no idea what God would do through that one stammering witness, by the way. Some of you have heard this tracing Dale Moody became the great evangelist that we know about, we've been talking about, but Dale Moody was responsible for the conversion of J. Wilbur Chapman. J. Wilbur Chapman, the great evangelist, was responsible for the conversion of another evangelist by the name of Billy Sunday, very unusual man. Billy Sunday was responsible for the conversion of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham led Billy Graham to Christ, who was just buried not quite six years ago. Collectively, those men led millions to Christ. Edward Kimball had no idea the chain of events he was setting in motion when he went into that shoe shop. Neither do you or I. When we put our reputation aside, take our life in our own hands, it seems like, to be obedient to give the gospel. Andrew, he just believed that everybody was a candidate for salvation. He didn't dismiss anybody. 
these Greeks, these Gentiles wanted to see Jesus. Wait, they were Gentiles. They were aliens and strangers. They had no claim upon him. They were like that Syrophoenician woman, that Canaanitish woman told about in Matthew chapter 15, who wanted Jesus to help her demon-possessed daughter. And Jesus seemed to rebuff her and said, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She didn't take that for a no. She just drew near. She just found, craved a place of mercy, and she got it. Andrew was like that. He wanted to share his Lord and Savior with everybody. We've entered a new year. God has left here for, us here for a reason. Well, I hope he won't be able to say about you before the end of this year, why, is he, why have I left him there? He's just cumbering the ground. She's just spinning her wheels. She's not accomplishing anything for me. You and I can't witness to the wrong person this year. Every man, every woman that God puts in our path is eternity bound. A candidate for heaven or a candidate for hell. We say that, but do we believe it? If it's not true, if that is not what this Bible teaches, if that's what, not why Jesus came, then let's quit pretending. Let's quit playing church. Let's just be honest with the rest of our vain lives and do something honest. Let's just declare a social gospel like most churches are doing and try to make people's lives as comfortable as possible before they finally go into oblivion. But if this is true, and if there is a heaven, and if there is a hell, and our loved ones are headed there, let's die to self. Let's die to our reputation. Let's be like Andrew. May God raise up a church full of Andrews. We often hear the saying, charity begins at home. I submit to you that soul winning should begin with the family. Let's start there, but not stop there. My dad was the youngest of 13 children. He did not grow up in a Christian home. His mother left him when he was four years of age. He was raised by sisters. When he finally got saved, he took upon himself the responsibility, I'm the only one that's saved. I better go after my siblings. Only eight lived in maturity, but he led most of those eight to Christ, including his mother dying with cancer. God is looking for some average Andrews who would be willing to follow Christ for themselves and then be zealous to introduce others to him. And I challenge us all tonight on this first Sunday night of a new year. In every wise and worthy way. At every possible opportunity. In the forefront of our aspirations and prayers and actions. Let's seek to bring people to Jesus. And you know what? We don't have to be, have a degree in apologetics. We don't have to master this book. 
Just bring them to Christ. He'll know what to do with them. Let's pray. Oh God, break our hearts for souls. We talk about it, but we seldom do it. Please do something in our hearts tonight that won't be quickly taken from us. The world won't be able to stamp out. Ambition won't be able to snuff out. Carnal Christians won't be able to smother. Do something for you, I pray. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.